You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. It's Michael Jamin. I'm here with Phil Hudson. Hey, Phil. Hey, everybody. He says, what up? Keeps it low key. So uh, we're doing another Q and A episode. So we every month, Phil and I host a live webinar where we talk. We pick a topic, we dive into it real deep. The last one, this one is for May. The one we did in May had a bunch of questions, and uh, if anybody wants to go get that one, they're all, all the webinars. By the way, Phil, you know this, but I'm telling everyone who's listening, they're all free. They're all free if you attend live, and we give you stuff like free stuff download stuff that you can get if you attend live and if you miss it you can get a free re- replay 24 for 24 hours but then if you miss that and you want to buy it you can buy it for a slow uh, a low price on an, on my website michaeljammon.com uh and this website this sorry webinar was called uh, how to get people to attend your industry event or um uh or or, or watch your stuff right because everyone wants to you know entice industry types so we give a whole hour-long talk on that and then uh, we got a lot of Q&As, a lot of questions. And so here are the ones that I wasn't able to answer. And uh, for your enjoyment and listening pleasure. All right, Phil, hit me. So for formatting, again, I've kind of grouped them into topics. So we'll go topic by topic. And again, if your question was asked and you don't get an answer, it's because we probably already answered that. There are yeah. a couple questions at times that we re-answer or readdress because everyone asked that question and people don't seem to get the answer when you tell them because you say it all the time. So yeah, that being okay. said, a couple things about the writer strike, just because it's topical right now. MB um, Stevens, WGA strike question. If the assistant loves our work and recommends it to an executive who wants to sign us, do we sign or wait until the strike is over? Oh, uh, no one's going to, no one's going to sign with you now. I, I really don't think anyone's going to sign. So uh, you can sign if they decide to sign you. You could go ahead and sign, but they're not going to solicit work for you right now. Uh, oh, you think you're referring to agents and managers? And this yeah. question is about studio executives. And oh, I think studio executives? No. Yeah, oh, they're saying no. it recommends you to an executive. So the answer is no, right? Because that would be considered scabbing. Yeah. And the WGA no, you... has documentation about that. There's a whole site about it you could go look up. But anyway, yeah, from an agent manager question, I think that's a good question lots of people have. Yeah, sorry, I was mis, uh, misinformed. Yeah, no, if it's a studio, you can't solicit any work. For, don't, don't even, don't even try. You, yeah. you won't, you know. I think yeah. they said that even having a meeting with a studio executive about writing is considered an act of aggression yeah. against the WGA, and you're hurting yeah. your future industry anyway. So you wouldn't yeah. want to do that. You don't want to do that. No. I, I want to point out too, Michael. Like I get it. Like for a lot of people, this feels a little unfair because mm. they don't get any of the benefits of the WGA right now. However, the whole point of this is that they are fighting for your future rights the way that other people fought for Michael Jammin's rights and mm-hmm. Steve Blarum and Kevin Herman, all yeah. the other people that we know who are writers. Just other so you know, the 2008 strike cost me a lot of money, a lot of money. And I didn't, I'm not even upset about it. Like, I don't like losing, obviously, that money, but I always felt like it, I wouldn't have gotten any of this if it weren't for the people before me. So it's not really my money to have because it would have been zero without those people. So it's just like this, like, you know, it's this honor thing that you have to do if you want to have any honor in your life, you know. So, yeah, don't don't shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Ryan McCurdy, are there writers who are striking trying to shut down current productions in protest separate from picketing outside of the major studios? Yes, and they're being very successful. They're shutting down shows everywhere. I also know they have a um, 
I was talking to somebody about this just yesterday on on the picket line. There's like a, I don't know what they call it. It's like a guild strike force or whatever. And so they work the night shift from like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so it's only a couple of hardcore picketers. They go up like it's three in the morning and they start picketing studios if they know if that you know they're going to be doing a production there. And as long as there's more two or more people carrying a picket sign, uh, people won't break the line. You, but yeah. there has to be two or more. And so the transpo drivers, they're not going to break the line. No one, I, anyone who works in any uh, union or guild, they're not going to break the line, but there has to be two or more. And so these guys I was talking to, like actually this friend of ours, um, Mike Palatieri, who's um, on, on uh, Tacoma FD, he did it one night. He was there at 3 a.m. He's like, it was bleary. So uh, <laughs> yeah, they'll, they'll shut down. I, I And I did it as well back in 2008. I was you know, running around as well to different sets, as long as there's, um, you know, locations, as long as there's two more writers, people honor that the picket line. Yeah. One thing that's really important to note is that it's a very unified front from basically everyone in the industry where they understand yeah. that this is a reflection of a trend in the industry for everyone. And so mm -hmm. the transportation department is who I was thinking of in their contract. They are allowed they're no they cannot force their drivers to cross a picket line yeah. and so literally transpo won't show up to your set and if you don't have mm -hmm. transpo you don't have a show yeah these are union guys you know and, and teamsters are, you know yeah teamsters teamsters you don't, don't mess with the teamsters that's right they got good sandwiches there's your 30 rock reference oh, all right that. yeah liz lemon she like the trans the teamsters show up and make sandwiches and she's trying to figure out where they get their steak sandwiches like a whole episode okay. it's like a thing Anyway, uh, engagement. This is our next section, which I think speaks a little bit more to the topic of the webinar. And uh, yeah, these are just, you know, the whole topic, the whole thing was about this, how to get industry people to watch your stuff or attend your event. So the yeah. meat of this is in the replay, which is available right now uh, at michaeljammon.com slash shop. It's just a nominal fee and it's lifetime access. You don't, it's on demand. You can watch as many times as you want. Yeah. Fran. Yeah, shop. It was kind of hard to hear. Yeah. MichaelJammon.com slash shop. Put with a P. Okay. S-H-O-P. Yep. Fran, what if you don't have an event or something to watch? What about reading your script? I mean, how do, would you get people to read your script? Oh. Oh. How would get someone to read your script? Oh, that That's that's a big ask. Of, I, I was going to do a post about this, actually. That's a huge ask. And you only get to ask that once. And if it's garbage or not up to snuff or mediocre, you forget it. You just shot yourself in the foot because you only get one chance for a great first impression. And it's a big, you're asking someone in the industry to spend, let's say, two hours on your script, maybe spend an hour on notes, maybe another hour on a phone call, giving you those notes during which you are going to be very defensive because mm -hmm. no one likes getting notes. And it's an unpleasant experience. I, I was the same way. I didn't like getting notes. I want to be told my script was perfect. Uh, and I, I've done this enough where you start giving notes and people are like, you know, they get defensive. It's like, all right, look, I'm doing you a favor. It's a huge ask. So the best way to do it is have is the best way, obviously, and Phil, you know this, the best way is to have someone owe you a favor. Uh, and I've owed you were that's how we met. You were very good to me and my wife. And I felt like I owed you a favor, and that's how I and, read your script. And for everyone listening, I didn't know that you were who you were. I didn't right. because it was the right thing to do, and it would have done it for anybody in that situation. And I never looked at it as, I'm going to get something from this guy. It was literally like, I just had to do my job, and this was the ethical thing to do. And that right. paid off as, you know, call it karma. It paid off the way it should have, which is 
you offered to read something. I sent you something. And your response was, eh, it's a bit of a Frankenstein here. And that hurt. Mm. And yeah. I didn't ask you to read anything again for like three years. Till you, right until you're ready. But also, it, it, as far as I was going to do a whole, uh, I could do a whole, I don't know, maybe a webinar on this in the, in the future. So I don't want to rob from that. But basically, you, if, you, if it's talking about agents, and I've spoken about this, but you've got to bring more to the table than just a script. But there are some agents that will read un, uh, you know, unsolicited scripts. They will read from new writers. The big ones won't. You're not going to have anyone at UTA or ICM or CAA read your script. But that's okay. Uh, there are much smaller ones. But you don't pay them. Don't pay them up front. Right? That's not what agents don't do that. They, they work on commission. So uh, yeah. that's how you do it is you really create relationships uh, where people want to help you. But... Don't send anything unsolicited ever. And I was going to do a post about that as well, ever, because you expose people to liability. So yep. uh, it, it, this is one of those th things where like no good deed goes undone. If you send a script out to someone uh, unsolicited, like it, it's just going to get that it's just going to get that person in trouble. So that's why we yep. won't do it. That's why we won't read unsolicited scripts. Yeah, but to to that note, um, Chandra Thomas, who's in the writers' room this season, she's a strike captain, um, super mm -hmm. go getter. She was kind enough after the season to reach out to myself and Hannah, our writers' assistant, and offer to read anything we had. I've never asked there anyone else on that. I've never asked our showrunners. I've never asked anybody to read anything except my, for Mike Rapp, who was a peer who became a staff writer, and we trade right. things. But beyond that, she offered, and that's an incredibly right. kind gesture of hers. I still haven't sent her anything though, because I don't want to waste her. And that's because you forged a relationship. And I don't want to waste her. her time, so I still haven't. I've I've followed up with her, but I haven't right. sent her anything because I don't want to waste her right. time. Right. So. Right. All right. Awesome. Josh Hunt, does the book you suggest we publish? And I think this was you saying you need to put yourself out there and you need to do mm -hmm. more. Don't wait for people. Does the book you suggest we publish should it be the same story as an existing pilot we want to sell? It could be anything you want. I mean, uh, make a name for yourself. Make a name. You know, it, you putting out a book, and whether you indie publish it or get it by picked up by a publisher, if it only sells 500 copies or whatever, that's not going to move the needle. You have to make a hit. If you whatever, if it becomes a bestseller, people are going to reach out to you because they want to exploit you when you want to be exploited. And I use the word exploit because it gets your attention. It's you know, obviously I'm being a little flip, but, but you want to create something that, that people have, that people ha want. And so if you create whatever your script is, your, whatever your book is, I don't know, it, it, whatever you want it to be, as long when it becomes a bestseller, because it's well-written and because people want to read it, by the way, your, your poorly written books will probably not be a bestseller. Your well-written book might be, you know, and so then people will come after you because you got something they, they want, which is, basically a platform, something that uh, comes with a built-in audience. It's all about marketing. So much about Hollywood is it's a business. And if you, you know, I, I didn't read Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, it became a bestseller and they made a movie out of it. Uh, you know, and th that's just how it's done. And when you go back in time, this is how it's always been done for 40, 50 mm -hmm. years. You go, oh, I didn't realize that was that movie that I loved was based on a book. Yep, based on a book. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Graham Garside, if established writers such as yourself cannot read unestablished writer scripts for legal reasons or mm -hmm. fear of conflict of interest sake, who do you suggest we reach out to that can read them? 
Well, I, uh, kind of the same thing. I you forge forge relationships. That's why people. I say, people say, do I have to move to Hollywood? Well, you don't have to do a damn thing. But this is where you're going to make relationships. Uh, you know, I met a kid today just on the picket line, uh, and I was talking. He was a nice kid, and uh, he was actually friend. Uh, oh no, student of one of my friends who teaches at a local university. And he goes, this student is really good. Uh, you know, and, and he introduced me to him because he, you know. I don't know. I can't really help him. It's my world strike. But he wanted, he wanted to help this kid out, make it a, make a, a relationship, and so that only happens by being out here and by being good. It wasn't yeah. like the kid was bad. It was a bad writer. He thought this kid had potential. So that that's well, why that well, came. Right. There's capital, like, and we talk about this principle in business leadership capital, right? There's capital being exchanged. It's goodwill. And that, that's that favor you're talking about being owed, feeling like you owe someone. So your friend is not going to put you in a position to be around someone who they don't think can, will make it or can cut it. Right. Because right. that makes that burns stupid. your, it burns your bridge, right. his bridge with you. And that's what right. people are asking people to do. That right. That's literally one of the other questions here deeper down. Will I have to move back to Los Angeles to be successful at screenwriting? Put it on you here. You don't. <laughs> right. What's that, Phil? You don't have to do anything you want. And I was going to do a whole webinar coming up, you know, what to do if you don't, if you absolutely refuse to move back to Los Angeles or move to Los Angeles. Is there, what can you do? I'll, I promise. Well, I not promise, but I'm gonna we're we're gonna look into trying to do a webinar based on that topic. But you are tying one hand behind your back for sure. It's not. I'm not saying it's impossible, but you are making it. You're making it. This is a hard industry to break into. You're making it even harder because there are people here who are willing to sacrifice, give up, move away from their friends and families to start a new life in Los Angeles, maybe at the bottom. Uh, and they they're hungrier. They want it longer, uh, harder, more, and and they're going to skip to the head of the line, uh, deservedly so, because they've already sacrificed more than you have. So you don't have to do anything. And I like I said, I'll I'll try to do a webinar on that topic. What I would do if I refused to move to L.A., but you're making it harder. Yeah, absolutely. Zachary Doolin, and this is shifting into craft, by the way, which is All right. you know, the art, art of telling story, the art of, of screenwriting. Zachary Doolin, how much value do you give personal experience for inspiring great writing? As a young person, do I have to gain more of life experience to be a better or more authentic writer? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, that's the advantage of being older. You have more life experiences and you can kind of see things a little more clearly that you probably can't see when you're 20. Uh, uh, I know when I was um, young, when I was in my 20s, early 20s, uh, and I wanted to be a writer, well, here, here's a really good example. I, may, I, I loved uh, the, uh, the, the movie, well, the movie Biloxi Blues by Neil Simon. And, and then they, um, when I was in college, uh, they were staging it. So I... I Audition for it, and I got one of the leads, one of the small leads, and because I, I loved that play and that movie, and I remember thinking at the time, man, because it, it was loosely based on Neil Simon's life, and I remember thinking, oh, man, Neil Simon's so lucky that he was in the army and that he had an insane drill sergeant, because then he got a movie and a and a play out of it. How you know he's so lucky, and um, and you know I was like, well, if only I had been in the army and been abused like that. As I got older. You know, and I wrote this collection, my collection of personal essays. Uh, I have stories just like that. I didn't wasn't in the army, but I have interesting stories that I've just because I've lived life. And I know mm -hmm. 
fortunately, I have the talent and the craft now to be able to turn that into an interesting story uh, because it's not just like, you know, typing things up. So it's definitely, that's an advantage to being older. When you're young, it's easier to, it might be easier to break in because you're hungrier, you're, uh, you can live off less money, you don't have a family maybe, you might be willing to sleep on the floor more, you know, so it's, it's struggling is, is easier, I think, when you're younger. So there's that middle age, what is it? between 20 and 50, what is it? Is it 30? We don't know. There comes a point where like you're, you know, hopefully you'll have enough experience to put into your work. And until you do, it's really important to learn the craft. You know, might as well, you know, might as well use that time to write, learn how to write. I'll add that to, I'll add to that as well and say, you know, it's a level of life experience, but then there's also a level of emotional vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Like I had a lot of life experience, that most people don't want to have very early on in life. I could not emotionally process that information until I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who have a lot of life experience young and a lot of emotional vulnerability young, and they mm-hmm. are the people who are doing amazing things at a young age. I mean, not that your daughter has gone through a ton of stuff, but you speak often about one of your daughters having something to say. And yeah. I had something to say. I just didn't know how to say it despite having a phone to talk through, which is the form of screenwriting. Right. Yeah, see, that's the thing. You're right, Phil. You need two things. You have to have something to say, and you have to know how to say it to be a good writer. And you had plenty to say. You didn't know how to say it, you know, because you had a difficult childhood, and now you, can t- now you can tap into it. I didn't have anything to say, and I didn't know how to say it when I was, my, when I was 20, <laughs> but I had neither. My uh, daughter, who's that should, 20, that should make you all very happy, by the way, everyone listening, because Michael's saying... You can make a career even if you can learn those things. Yeah, you can learn those things, yeah. My daughter who's in college, she I think is amazing because she has a very high emotional IQ and she has something She has something to say and I'm teaching her how to say it. And she's learning really fast. She's really good. So, you know, everyone's got their own path. But Michael, isn't that nepotism? Isn't that, right, but if, you, if, you're, if your uh, father was a mechanic or worked on cars, then you probably would learn how to work on cars just by being around them all the time, you know? I was, you know, rarely have an opportunity to sit down on TikTok and scroll through things, but my wife lives on there and so she'll send me things. And I randomly one day stumbled upon this kid. He's 20 years old and he's a stonemason in Britain and he restores cathedrals. And Mm -hmm. I'm watching this 20-year-old with a chisel do things that blows my freaking mind. Right, And I'm like, it is so fascinating to watch this kid do this thing. That's basically a dead craft because yeah. machines should be able to do all these things. And right. he does it as an artisan and he's 20 years old. Yeah, and there's probably and then, four people in the world who can do it. Oh, that's what's beautiful about it. He, they're like, how did you learn this? And then he shows a photo of his dad and he's sitting beside his dad as a kid and his dad's doing that job and he's yeah. chiseling away, practicing at like eight years old. Yeah. He learned from his parents the same way we all did for thousands of years. Yeah, right. Learn from your parents. So I I asked that question facetiously because I know the answer is not nepotism. It is taking advantage of the opportunities in front of everyone. And there has never been a better time to get an advantage in anything you want to do than right now because of how accessible the internet has made people like you. You are teaching people how to do that like you taught your daughter. Yeah, I, exactly. I don't know. You know, if she gets it's the a, same stuff. Yeah. It's not yeah. special, right? Yeah, right. It's same yeah. stuff. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, similar to that, Adam Bilgard, talking about worldviews, is there a line where writers should shy away from content because they didn't live it? 
Uh, is there a line for the shot? I mean, obviously, you're not. It, it's hard for you to write a, a story, an authentic story about something you know, experience. I, I can't write a story about, you know, growing up in the inner city. I, I didn't, you know. Mm -hmm. So if I were to write a story like that, I would certainly want a co-writer or someone who, you know, who lived that experience so that I, so that it could be authentic. Uh, but that doesn't mean, you know, it, they say write what you know. So if yeah. you, whatever, it, it helps. It helps to write, be able to write what you know. It feels more authentic. Yeah. There's a writer, a New York Times bestselling writer that I was listening to and in an in introduction in his book, he said, I'm not the guy who interviewed this guy who did this thing. I'm the guy who remembers what it was like to do it. And that's mm -hmm. why my books are more authentic. I was like, oh, yeah. that's deep. And that's not to say, going back to what we're talking about, emotional intelligence and emotional IQ, mm -hmm. a lot of people with a lot of empathy who can channel a lot of those things, but mm -hmm. never going to be authentic as someone who has the capability to say something and experience. You know, it's like when we audition for actors who come in for parts, a lot of actors have a wide range, you know. Let's say the, the like the, they have a wide range. Let's say uh, you're auditioning for, um, you know, a uh, school bully or whatever, and, yeah. and a bunch of actors come in and they're, they they're convincing, right? But then one kid comes in who's a dick. You could just tell this kid's a dick, you know. You could you could just they just exude it, and you go, you got the part because they don't have to pretend. You they just they got that vibe. And I, we've cast people like that all the time who are so close to the part, who, who basically are the part. They don't need to act. They are the part. And so you, you, it, you tell me about one of those people. You tell me about one of those people. And I laughed because like, I imagine that person being that exactly that because they just live. Yeah. So it's the same um, thing for writing. It just it's easier if you are that part. I was listening to an interview with Chris Pratt and he said that he his big hit was on Everwood and he read the role and he didn't want to go do it. And so he's like, you know what? There's this thing I've always wanted to do, which is just go in and pretend I was the person and not put on the scene, but just be the person. And it's like the school bully. And so he's like, I walked in the audition. I was like, all right, so here's the thing. Obviously I'm the star of this show and this kid is a punk and he wants to be with my sister and that's messed up. And my job is to make sure he knows he can't come into my world and mess this up. And they're like, uh, and then he walked out all egotistical. And then he said, when he left, he turned to the door and listened. And they're like, that's our guy, right? Because yeah. <laughs> obviously he's not the main character. He's the dick in the show messing with the main character. But yeah. that, they, and you say this all the time, the bad guy is the hero of the story. In his mind, he's the hero. And he did yeah. it. And that's how he got his break, doing exactly yeah. what you said. Right, right. Interesting. Uh, cool. Awesome. So next up, we've got Linda Gaxco. Is there a specific format for scripts? And I, and I thought that would be something you haven't talked about in a while. Well, yeah, there's a format depends on what you're writing. So the format is going to be different for a half hour multi-camera sitcom for a half hour live action, uh, single camera sitcom or an animated, they all have slightly different formats. Uh, there's a different format for slightly different format from a movie. But to be honest, if you mess up, like you're not going to get hired if the margins are perfect. You know, the story has to be good or great. So uh, you can Google all those formats and you can go on my website and even download some sample formats at michaeljammon.com. You could download some sample scripts and a couple different formats just so you get the margins right. Just so it looks better, but to be, I, but honestly, if you get the margins slightly wrong, it's not a big deal. I, I've written professional scripts, turned them in, and to have someone at the studio say, "We don't like your margins," I don't know, I'll change the margins. What do I care? Uh, yeah, I'll change the margins. 
you know, but the, the, the story works. The story is the most important part. You can't fake that part. Yeah, and software does that for you now. You don't yeah. have to have a Word template that you handcrafted with the margins like you did yeah. in 92. Yeah, right. Uh, awesome. Uh, Joshua Drew, Joshua Dewberry, excuse me, Joshua. When developing characters for shows or movies, are certain actors kept in mind during the writing process or are they picked after the characters are developed? It, it depends what you want. I mean, my partner and I generally, no, pretty much always write with an actor in mind for each part. And it could be an A-list star, could be someone we're never going to get for the role, but we write with them in mind just to get their voice. Uh, it helps just to imagine, you know, oh, no, that's not how, that actor wouldn't play that well. Or, you know, they, oh, that they, they do snarky, so I can hear the voice. Um, so it definitely helps, but I don't, uh, I don't need to, sometimes you'll read a script and they'll say, you know, Think Arnold Schwarzenegger for the whatever role. Okay, okay, sh sure. I, I I tend not to do that, but some people do. Yeah, yeah, I tend to do that occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, David Booker, how soon in the script or novel do you need to identify the obstacle and goal, or do obstacle and goal define the protagonist and need to be defined up front? The sooner you, the sooner the better. The sooner the the. And I have a free lesson. If anybody wants to download this, uh, go to michaeljammon.com/free, where I explain this a little better in more detail. But the sooner you set that up, the, stab the sooner the audience is able to identify the hero and the obstacle and the goal, the better. Uh, Any time until then, the, you're, you're literally boring people. You're waiting for them to do something else. So the sooner, the better. That, a common note we'll get from st any studio executive is, can you start the, sto the story sooner? And then you'll get that on, you know, it, page three is pretty fast. Yeah, but can you do it on page two? Sure. And I've written stories in my book, and I, oh, I, I was going to talk about that. I'm glad we're doing that. I'll make a note where uh, the story starts fast, really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Hey, it's Michael Jammon. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you, and it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammon.com slash watch list. Maria Perez, how do you trace a map? This, is, I think, is a translation, so... How do you okay. how you trace a map to a great story that has multiple layers? How do you outline a story that has multiple layers? Is I think the question. The most important thing you need to do is get the story, uh, tell your compelling story. That's figure that out. Figure out how to break the story. Once that's done and your story is rock solid and, and you can you know how to hang that thread all the way through, then you can go back and add in the layers, uh, you know, the little themes that maybe people may pick up and may not pick up. Then you can go back and say, oh, you know what? He should be watching the Clipper game because it feels like a game. And so that's later. Uh, if you do it first, you probably will fall in love with it and then you'll bend the story to make that work. And it shouldn't be. The story always comes first, always. Talk to anybody, the story comes first. Yeah, that's that's a solid note. When I was in film school in Santa Fe, I, one night I was driving on a coyote, like walked through the middle of the street at night. And I was like, oh, that's a cool moment. Let me put that in a script. And then later when I redid another draft on that script, it became a vulture because it was more on theme to what I was writing about with mm -hmm. predatory people. So that, to your note, it's just rewriting. And, yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, next section is being a pro. Yeah, Yankee. Okay. 
what, what in your mind is a good balance of honing your craft at a higher level? Would you focus more on working with others' voices, more solo work, or like 40-60 split between the two? Well, when if you're going to work in television, and most screenwriters, I think, start should should start in television. You'll learn more about story structure on a, on a TV show than you will trying to sell a movie on your own. Uh, so I always recommend starting TV first. And when you start in TV, you don't need to have a voice. You need to capture the voice of whatever show you're on. So, you know, uh, it's a little harder now because it's a little harder now. Now new writers are also expected to have their own voice, which I feel is very unfair. Uh, so I would do I guess I would maybe I'd make a case for doing both. I would say work on stuff, original stuff of your own that has a voice, and then also try to write sample material for shows that already exist, or even if you want to do a movie, a movie that feels the tone of some other movie, so that you can develop two skill sets. One is being this mimic and one is having an original voice. Because when I'm I'm working on a TV show, I don't have to have an original voice ever. It's I'm I'm capturing someone else's voice. Yeah. Um the terminology gets a little confusing here for people. So in features, a spec script mm -hmm. is a script that you're writing on speculation that you can sell it. And that typically means you get paid more to do it because you assume the risk. Whereas an assignment is something a studio gives you and you write that. But in the TV world, a spec script is writing a sample of an existing show. Right. That you're not going to try to sell. It's just a writing sample. Yeah. And going back to the second thing I ever had you read, it was a spec script of Mr. Robot that I wrote for a TV writing mm -hmm. class I had. And your note feedback was different. It was, I can tell you're a competent writer. You captured their voices, you, these things, but it's good, not great. And you have to be great. And then I was like, oh, crap. And then I took three more years to send you something else, yeah. right? But it was a good ex exercise for me to say, can I do the job of writing but show. along the way, you're all, you were always writing, always working, and get working to get better. And you saw the you saw improvement in yourself. Mm -hmm. Like others, you didn't even have to ask to see. Like you saw it in yourself, right? The more you wrote, the more the better you got. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think I w there are a couple of things I've picked up from you that we've talked about on the podcast, and we definitely talk about on the webinar. That I wish I would have caught earlier. The big one for me was when I was going to send you something and you're like, do me a favor and print it out and then send yeah. it to me so I don't have to print it out. And I was like, huh, okay. And so then my rewrites, the process that really changed this for me was this. Mm -hmm. I print out my script. I take a red pen. I just sit down in a chair and I read it and I do no editing on the computer because for years I would just beat up the same script and polish the same first act and never really get anywhere. And now I take the lessons from your course and I'll whiteboard what are my three acts, what are the structure points that need to be there. And then I write the page count there just to give me an idea of how balanced the script is. And that all comes from the course, but the, the printing things out thing really did it for me. I stopped yeah. polishing the turds. And yeah, it really helps that, to look at a hard copy. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, to, to answer your question, yes, I, I was learning, but those things for anyone listening, that's just learn that now and save yourself a couple of years of pain sitting yeah. in front of a computer. Great. Uh, Rich Scott, any thoughts on a daily goal for your writing? What is a successful day of writing for you? Uh, well, for anybody, it depends what your schedule is. If you, if you, what, if you can write 10 or 15 minutes a day, if you're super busy and you can do 15 minutes, great. That's a successful day. Um, it just depends what your schedule looks like. If you're, you know, if it's a weekend and you only, and you have nothing to do and you only write 15 minutes, that's not successful. If you had, 
if you could have put in more hours. Uh, but again, I, to me, I don't measure success by page count because I'll often put out pages which are unusable. But what, what it does to me is hopefully gets me closer to what is usable. And so uh, to me, a successful day is it can even be when I'm driving in a car and I'm working on a, a story problem, just one problem, I'm not working on the whole story. I'm just thinking, well, how do I make this entrance work? For this character, how do I give them a, a good int entrance? Or uh, what am I, what is the story really about? Well, I'll focus on one problem. I'll turn the radio off, and if I can find the answer to one problem during a half hour commute or whatever it is, that's successful. I make a note, and now I go home and I can write it later. You can get a lot done. You can get a lot done in a half hour car ride if you just focus on one problem. That was the other big piece of advice you gave me. So funny how that lined up. So as a PA, I would spend so much time driving around LA and sitting in traffic and I'd listen to podcasts and stuff. And you were like, you asked her like, do you listen to podcasts in the cars? Like, yeah. And you're like, stop, just yeah. start working on your stuff. So I would turn on voice memos and I would just talk out loud to myself to solve mm -hmm. my problems. And I'd get home and oftentimes I didn't even need to reference it, but I had it. So I didn't lose anything. And it was uh, really, yeah. really helpful. Yeah. So, turn off the radio. A lot yeah. of people in the webinar also commented that they loved that piece of advice you gave. You give, had given it earlier, and a lot of people mm -hmm. said it's really turned things around for them. Which is so, what? The, uh, turning the turning stuff off in your car and, and focusing yeah. on even just 15 minutes a day of just working on a story yeah. problem. Yeah. yeah. Just nuggets of gold being dropped by Michael Jammin here. Oh. Don't pick your mic up and drop it. We've still got a podcast. Yeah. we got more to talk about. All right. Uh, David Kepner. Uh, excuse me. Super speed 2378. Do you, as a working writer, still find time to make what you consider art, or do you get enough joy and fulfillment out of the business side, the stuff that makes money? No, I get I get more joy and pleasure from my side project. I'll plug it now, a paper orchestra, which is just my passion project, which is a collection of personal essays, which hopefully will be available uh, soon for purchase for for all of you. But uh, to me, I get more I get more pleasure out of that. When I write for a studio, I'm getting paid and I have to give them what they want. And that's fair. It's a fair trade. And sometimes I'm writing stuff I'm not crazy about. That's okay. I got to pay the bills. Uh, totally fine with me. But when I'm writing this on the side, this is, and I'm not sure if it's, I struggle with what art is. We've had this conversation. What is art? And um, mm -hmm. But to me, it's, this is closer to art than what I did when I do as a, as a sitcom writer, just because uh, I think it's coming from a more truthful, emotional place. So, uh, I, and I struggle with what art is. So I think maybe this this is closer to, I think this is maybe art. I know it's difficult to do for me to do, but uh, I get a lot of, and I don't get paid for or I haven't gotten paid for this yet at least. So it's not about the money. Yeah, yeah, awesome. David Kepner, what's the difference between writers and script doctors? Well, there's really no such thing as a script doctor. So every writer, and they, anyone who's ever doctored a script, which is like this crazy term, I guess Carrie Fisher once, once referred to Carrie Fisher as a script doctor. We, oh, the script is dying, bring in a script doctor. Uh, I don't, I, it's not really a thing. It, it, you're, you're just a screenwriter. Every screenwriter will work on trying to sell a movie or, or, or a TV show, trying to write something original, working on someone else's project. Sometimes you get called in to do a rewrite on someone else's project. And I guess you could say that person is a script doctor. Some people say, I want to be a script doctor. And there's no such thing. You want to be a screenwriter 
who maybe gets side work doctoring someone else's fixing someone else's script. But by the way, no one's going to hire you to fix someone's script if you can't do it yourself. If you don't, if you can't write a good script on your own, no one's going to pay you to fix someone else's. Like, we're, I, it's just such an amazing, there's so much bad knowledge on the internet that people are just fishing out and they're thinking, well, I don't really want to write a screenplay. It's a lot of work. I don't really want to learn how to write, but I don't mind fixing someone else's piece of crap. Who do you think is going to hire you if you can't do it yourself? So yeah. you need to learn the art of, in the craft of screenwriting. You need to learn it. So this thing about script doctoring, it's just a fancy word that, you know, yeah, what are you talking about? There's yeah. another avenue to this and without naming names, there are people who call themselves script doctors who will read your script, Michael, for $500 mm. and give you notes and tell you all of the problems and help you fix yeah. them. I'd like to read that their script and find out if they can write. Yeah. Right. And well, I'd like to read, I'd like to see their credits. I'd like to look them up on IMDb. What have they done that they're so, that they're so uh, good at telling you how to do that job? Right. Uh, you know, really. It's a lot yeah. of money being spent by naive yeah. people who want yeah. to be writers and people selling the dream. And you don't yeah. do that. You sell the reality, the harsh reality. Yeah. And I know. And I say that even at the end when we, you know, when I'm, we're talking about my course, I'm like, listen, I have a course. You can get it or not. It's okay. If you don't want to get it, just keep following me. I offer a lot of free advice. You don't, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to trick anybody into buying anything. So yeah, and you also tell them like, you're not going to make their career. Like, you, no, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. All I can do is help that. you. I can teach you what I know. It's up to you to, who knows what kind of talent you have and we, who knows what kind of work ethic you have. That's on you. So yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, Ariel Medley, I'm an aspiring screenwriter with a two-year-old child. Should I ever get into a writer's room? Any advice on balancing the long hours with parenting? And I thought this was a good one because you had kids when you were writing, right? You were in your career. Sure, I have. And I was just talking to uh, my friend Cliffy, Carrie Cliffy, yesterday. Uh, and she has a kid. And so it's hard for her to be to have long hours. It's hard, especially, you know, I, I think this is a woman who asked this yeah, question. Yeah, Ar Ariel. So I'm assuming okay. mother. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's definitely hard. I mean, the hours in TV can be really brutal and you will probably be away from your child for long hours. So how do you balance you know, so that's just the that's the jo the job is the hours are terrible. It might not be for it might not be something you want to consider until your child is a little older. So in the meantime, work on your craft, become really, really good so that when your kid is in high school and wants nothing to do with you, you don't feel so bad when you're working till midnight every night. And, and, yeah. and at that point, if you're, if you've worked on your craft so long, you're going to be really good. Perfect. Timing is perfect. You'll spend next, why not spend the next, you know, 13 years getting really good at writing so that when you get that job, woo, you can start flying, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's. I'll tell you, it's tough. I was uh, working fourteen-hour days as a producer's assistant on a feature film uh, mm -hmm. when my kid was born, and that that was just. I would go days without seeing my kid because I'd leave before she got up, and that sucked. Really hard. I, I miss those days, but I cherished mm -hmm. and treasured those midnight cry sessions and the weekends. So yeah, just make the yeah, most right. of the time and be as present as you can be. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul Cromwell, do aspiring writers ever make it after turning in a bad draft and burning their one shot? Um, well, I mean, if you're on, uh, do they ever make it? Like, I, I, I can't say ever. I, mean, I, I can't speak for I can't speak for all of Hollywood. Uh, sure. You know, 
when I'm on staff of a TV show, if a if a writer turns in a draft that's unusable, then you got to measure it. Well, how how good are they in the writers' room? How much do they contribute uh, that's usable? Uh, you know, they may be terrible in the room, and their scripts are terrible. Well, that they're not gonna they're they're gone. Uh, but they may actually have really good ideas, but still need a little more handholding, a little more mentorship, and maybe it's a diamond in the rough. But the problem is that these days have changed. Like when I broke in the writer's staff, the writer's rooms were much larger. And so you could hide, if you're a young writer and you didn't really know how to do it yet, most don't, you could hide a little bit. Today, the writer's rooms are smaller because the budgets are smaller. So there's less, there's fewer places to hide. And so... Mm -hmm. Uh, I re it really you really want to be prepared. You really want to understand story structures so well that you can turn on a draft so that you don't have to worry about being fired. Uh, you know, because that's a shame. It's hard enough to break in, and then now you now you now you're fired. Great. Yeah, and t and tying it back to what we talked about at the beginning, specifically for aspiring writers, right? I effectively burned my one shot with you when I sent you my first script. It was mm -hmm. not a good script. It, I understood nothing about story structure. I just knew how to put some things together and some formatting. Uh, but I didn't burn my bridge with you because of the goodwill I had earned and the understanding of where I was at and your mentorship. But I understood also sending more bad stuff real quick was a quick way to burn that bridge, which is why I didn't. So you just got to be conscientious and you got you to gotta have social skills. Like the social awareness is a really key thing. So... Uh, and I, I apologize, I didn't write this person's name down, uh, but I'm a student and I don't have the money for the course. Uh, this is speaking about your screenwriting course. If I could do a monthly payment that is not one quarter of my entire paycheck for my minimum wage job, is there any way I could get it cheaper? And I thought this was an interesting one because there are a lot of people who want to know, like, you know, can I take your course? I can't afford the course right now. Any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, yeah, we have a monthly payment plan. So uh, where it's it's a hundred something a month for six months. So which is not terrible, but if you're making minimum wage, everything is going to seem expensive to you. I mean, a bar of soap is going to seem expensive. So right now you have to prioritize. You need to, you need to pay your, you know, eat. You need to pay your rent and have food. That's the most important thing until you start having more money and then you have a little more spending cash. But I, I never try to convince somebody to, uh, you know, pay me over putting food in their mouth, uh, you know, in their mouth. Eat, eat first. You know, that's, yeah. more, that's more important than taking a class for me. Yeah, and that's why you, do so much in terms of podcasting and the webinars yeah. and all these things is so that you can give that stuff. Uh, and it's really a quality check on the people entering the private Facebook group and those things. It's, it's important, valuable information. That's why. Yeah. But I give up plenty, like Phil saying, I give up plenty of free knowledge all the time. So that, go enjoy that. So that's okay. Yeah. Awesome. And then the last three questions here, cause I know we're getting close on time. Mm -hmm. The Jovenshire has two questions. All right. What's the difference between a studio wanting to cast someone and to develop them? Oh, well, um, often when you're developing a TV show, I'm sure probably it's the same for movies, but uh, you'll, you'll, ha you'll have talent attached or you'll think of attaching talent. You know, hey, if I go in with this actor, well, can I sell it? And sometimes uh, you'll be told that actor is casting or sometimes you can say, no, they're, they're development. And, and it, it's up to the studio to decide whether the character, whether that actor is casting or not, which in other words, do they have enough, does a studio want, is willing to pay to put them in the middle of a show? I mean, like Tim Allen is not casting. Tim Allen you develop for because he's done so many hits. And so anytime he's attached to a project, the studio is mm -hmm. going to 
probably green light it. And if you go in with Tim Allen to your pitch, it's sold and it's probably on the air. But if you went in with someone who is like Tim Allen, funny like Tim Allen, and I'm only using Tim Allen's name because someone mentioned him on the picket line today. If you went into someone like him who had done a couple of guest spots or maybe he's a stand-up but no one's heard of, he, that's casting. So yeah. those questions, and I'm not the one, like I said, I'll often ask my agent or manager, is this, is this actor, this famous actor who we've heard of, are they, are they casting or are they development? Can you, are they, you know? And sometimes my managers say, no, 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 as famous as they are, they're, they're casting. That's wild. I just learned something. I've, I had no idea the difference in yeah. those terms, and that's backwards of what I expected that to be. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. No, no that's awesome. Thanks for the question. Uh, follow up, another question from the Jovenshire. What's your take on modern multicam shows? It's clear, clearly not as popular as it used to be. That's a bit of a, a, an opinion. And the writing quality seems to be less than most other single cam comedies. Well, um, you, the studios are always, or networks are always saying we want more multi-cameras because uh, they're less expensive to make. And But they seem to always buy single camera shows. I think single camera shows lend themselves to a higher level. They just have a patina about them. And by the way, I've written both and I don't really have a preference as to which one I want to write. Um, they just seem to have a, a, a patina, but that's not to say... Like, you know, Friends. Friends was great, and that was a multi-camera show, as Seinfeld as well. So, um, yeah, why do they do less? They, I don't know. It, it, it can be eggy. Multi-camera, sometimes they have cornier jokes. Yeah. Uh, that's not really, that's not a good thing. It's just, a, you know, the, the writing isn't as, isn't as good. Whereas on a single-camera show, often you can go straight. You don't have to have corny jokes. Why is this? I don't know. This is just, you know, I, I, this doesn't even have... It's such a weird thing to say because back in the 70s, there were many multi-camera shows that were not corny uh, and they didn't have a lot of jokes. It's just that styles have changed and often these networks, they want to have more jokes per page. That's just kind of what they want. You know? Yeah. I didn't answer the yeah. question. I'm sorry. I tried. No, I think you did. I think you addressed the, the, the core of the question. Okay. Writing quality seems to be less than and it's, it's just yeah. part of it. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. You know, it just depends on the show. Friends is really you, good. And you've had a, a ton of really strong multi-cam showrunners uh, on the podcast. Uh, yeah. Interviewing and talking yeah. about things. So, so if you haven't gone and listened to those episodes, go do that. And you can mm -hmm. see, like, these are people who are pros at the highest level doing their job as best as they can. Yeah. But oftentimes you're working for someone else. You're giving them the show, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. So, all right. Last question from Angelina. What opportunities are best to learn from and take advantage of while being a current college student? Oh, any opportunity. You go, make a friend, make a movie with your friends, with the other film students or whatever college students. Your your opportunities are to write, act, perform, make whatever opportunity is in front of you. Take it. If it's helping somebody out on a student film, do it. This is your start at the bottom. Any opportunity. If you if you have on the week, you know, during summer break. If you're able to get any kind of job as a receptionist in a production house or a studio or anything, to get what take it. Whatever you can do to get closer to what your goal, whatever your job is, physically closer, take it. There's no opportunity that's wrong. You know, if yeah. you even if you want to work at a, if you manage to get a job as a, working for a talent agent, all right, that's better. That's closer than you were before. You know, don't stick it out longer than you have to, but 
you'll learn just even if you want to be a screenwriter, you'll learn a little bit about the business for by working for an agent or a manager. Yeah. I wish in film school I would have spent more time taking advantage of production opportunities. But I was so mm -hmm. focused on being a writer, I didn't do that. And then when I got to Los Angeles, I would have had far more opportunities if I'd done yeah. that. Yeah. I had to do things. I knew how walkie works. I knew kind of the basic job of being a PA. I knew what C stands were. I knew all of that stuff. But just didn't quite get the scope of work entailed to do something. So make sure you get those opportunities. That's it, Michael. That's uh, those are your questions from our, our May webinar. We did it, Phil. Thank you, everyone. Uh, that's it. We are, we continue to, you know, I got a newsletter. Everyone should be on that. You should be watching as much as you can. It's free. Uh, you can go to michaeljammon.com. You can find all this free stuff. I got a free screenwriting list. I got a free webinar that I do once a month. I got a free a newsletter. We have downloads. We have all this stuff mm. to make your life easier to get you know along your to get your dream of whatever it is to become working in Hollywood. So there's plenty of resources. Go get it. Go get it. You know that's right, Phil. Anything else? Yeah, the only thing I wanted to point out, I don't think you said it for information about your book, michaeljammon.com slash upcoming, which is also on the site, but particular because you brought it up, I want to make sure knew about that link. Yeah, it's a collection of personal essays, and some of the stories are from me working in Hollywood, and some are just are not. But uh, you'll see when you read it, uh, I hope you all read it, it's, um, these are little stories, and each one could easily be a movie or an episode of a television show. And these are true stories from my life, and you all have the same thing. And I, in my course, I teach you how to write stories like this. Uh, and it's lovely. So if you want to go be notified when I start touring uh, to come to your city, go to michaeljammon.com slash upcoming, and I hope to see you there. Yeah. It's a really great example for anybody interested in being a writer or an actor or anybody. There's a lot of nebulous terms that have been in the industry for 100 years. And write what you know is one that may not make sense to a lot of people. But yeah. that is a really strong example of doing that. It's you know mining your life for stories and those kinds of things. Other thing I wanted to point out, we do a webinar every month. Like you said, there's one coming up. Make sure you go to michaeljammon.com slash webinar. Get on the list and register. It's completely free. You can catch the replay if you can't make it to the official thing, uh, but that's incredibly valuable information that you provide to anybody. Yeah. So We'll see you there. All right, awesome. Phil. Thank you so much, everyone. Uh, until next week, keep writing. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jammon and Phil Hudson. If you're interested in learning more about writing, make sure you register for Michael's monthly webinar at michaeljammon.com slash webinar. If you found this podcast helpful, consider sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. For free screenwriting tips, follow Michael Jammon on social media at Michael Jammon Writer. You can follow Phil Hudson on social media at Phil A. Hudson. This podcast was produced by Phil Hudson. It was edited by Dallas Crane. Music by Ken Joseph. Until next time, keep writing.